Now, Scotland's talking. Call 0333 2020 401 and join the debate. Hello from me, Ali Belly. Very good morning to you. Welcome to Scotland's Talking. Music and conversationing through until midday. On the programme today, I'm asking, are we good at grieving? We're very buttoned up about it. We don't like talking about how we feel. And the result is we just don't talk about it and often pay a bit of a price for not talking about it. I'd like you to tell me how people treated you when you experienced a bereavement. A survey says nearly half of us think people avoid us after, de after a death in the family. Vicky will be telling us her story. People look at you funny, you know, oh, there's the dead baby lady, you know, and they, they deliberately avoid you and friends don't contact you, even some relatives. I also want to hear your stories about what it's like on the buses these days. Two out of three people told Citizens Advice Scotland they're unhappy with their local bus service. <whistles> and we'll also be talking about wolf whistling. Should it be treated as a hate crime? MPs have been discussing wolf whistling and what it says about our attitude to women. All coming up between now and midday. This is Scotland's Talking. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Why do we find, do you think, it's so hard to talk about death? And it goes further than just not talking about it. A survey's been done about how British people handle bereavement. And it found that nearly half of adults think people actively avoid them while they were grieving because they were worried about saying the wrong thing. And nearly six out of ten of us say we felt pressure to return to work after the death of someone close to them. A loss of a loved one is something that all of us have experienced. And if you feel like sharing your story this morning, the phone number is 0333 2020 401. One of my colleagues, Vicky Murray, lost her baby nine years ago at birth, and she's been telling Colin Stone how people were quite unsure how to react. Basically, I was halfway through my pregnancy when I had an amniocentesis. Unfortunately, I was the 1% where your waters break, and 10 days later, I became infected with septicemia, and he was stillborn. Um, I mean, how do you even begin to process that? What was going through your mind at the time? Well, I'd, I had two previous miscarriages to this, but, you know, you just think when you get to 20 weeks pregnant, you just think it's plain sailing from there and everything's going to be fine. They tell you that the amniocentesis is going to be fine, you know, that, that it's only 1% that's in danger and then you are that 1%, you know. So it was it was really, really difficult to process Obviously, you're just racked with grief. You've just it was it was like nothing I've ever felt before. And how did people around you, you know, colleagues, friends, deal with this this news? How did they react? You really find out who your friends are because, to be quite honest with you, most people don't know what to say to you, or they just avoid you completely. You know, for example. If they're not avoiding you, you know, then they're saying the, the wrong thing. Like, I had somebody say, well, it could have been worse. It could have been one of your other children that had died. He was still one of my children. You know, I still, I still live every day without one of my children, regardless of how long I'd known him for. You know, so it's it's, it's difficult, you know, and people look at you funny, you know, oh, there, oh, there's the dead baby lady. You know, and they, they deliberately avoid you and friends don't contact you, even some relatives work colleagues as well, you know, they don't know what to say to you. 
you know, when you go back to work, there's a sort of expectation that you're okay now because you've returned to work and nothing could be further from the truth. And the reality is you would rather have people address it directly to you. Or if people don't know what to say, that's fine. I don't know what to say to you. I don't know how you're feeling. Here's a here's a hug. But when people, you know, just skirt round the issue rather than saying, how are you? Are you okay? What's happening? What You know, how are you feeling? Have you been to the cemetery? You know, it's okay to ask people these things. You know, we're not going to cry and run away and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's nine years on. How do you still deal with the grief today? If it's still, I'm assuming, still very much with you. Well, I'm lucky, and in other respect, I've I've made my peace with what happened to me. It t- as it t- as it transpired, Cody was very ill, and he would have had a terrible wee time when he was born. Anyway, I've now got another another daughter, so you know I've sort of made my peace with it. However, you're still left with a sort of lingering sadness. Obviously, you know you've had first steps, first teeth, first words, first day at school taken away from you. So all that is still still there, even nine years on. But the worst thing nine years on is we are no further forward in how we speak to people who've lost somebody, whether it be a parent, a child, a partner. We just don't know how to deal with grief and how to speak about grief. And it's such a massive taboo, you know, just talking about grief. And I know that, you know, Brits in general and sort of Scottish people as well, you know, you've got to have that stiff upper lip and, you know, keep calm and carry on. But we really should be talking more about it. Uh, and why why is it in your mind that Scots find it difficult to talk about death? Well, that's just the sort of, even like, not just like a working class mentality to, to, to my mind, you know, it's just a case of, well, you know, you just get on with things, you don't talk about it like you did years and years ago you know we've not came any further from what it was like in the 60s and 70s you know I know of people who lost children back then and you just didn't speak about it at all and to be quite honest 30 40 years on we're still not any further forward and it's just that you know oh let's just get on with it that's the funeral past right everybody back to normal don't talk about it and really I think it's to make other fe- other people feel comfortable not yourself it's to make other people feel comfortable and I know, I've done it myself, you know, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. And, you know, you don't talk about it because you can see other people being visibly uncomfortable with you mentioning any kind of grief at all. And what would you what would you say to people who, they have a colleague or a friend who's going through grief, what advice would you give them on how to approach the subject? Well, if you don't know what to say, just, you know, a, a hug, a cuddle is as good as anything. I don't know what to say to you. I, I've no words for you. You know, if you... But... As I said, you know, we're not going to break down and cry. We might cry, though. You know, people might cry. But, you know, how are you feeling? What's what's happening? What's what's the latest? Are you, are you feeling any better? You know, are you are you visiting the cemetery? Are you, you know, do you feel you're, you've come any for... Are, is anybody helping you? How do you feel? You know, and that's just all that people want to know. And, you know, it's always nice as well, you know, whether, you, whether it's you're talking about a baby or a parent or whatever, to talk about them. You know, to talk about your memories or talk about what happened, talk about your experience. You know, people just want to talk about their loved ones so that they're remembered. Vicky Murray there talking to Colin Stone uh, about um, the experience she went through when she lost her baby nine years ago and she's still going through now. Uh, joining me at the moment is Stuart Wilson, who's the Chief Executive of Cruise Bereavement Care Scotland. Uh, good morning, Stuart. Good morning. So let's let's tell me first of all what does Cruise Bereave Care Scotland do? 
Well, we provide a range of services and support for people who are bereaved, and there's no doubt about the need for it, because this last year we've seen calls to our helpline go up by 15%, and uh, the amount of actual counselling we offer has gone up 20%. Now, we're not one of these people that, one of these organisations that say everybody needs counselling when they're bereaved, quite the reverse, in fact. We're very clear that often what the previous uh, lady, Vicky, was saying, people just need a kind word. They don't need therapy. Bereavement's a very natural process. There's 50, over 50,000 deaths a year in Scotland. Research shows that at least four people are affected by every death significantly. That's 200,000 people bereaved every year are feeling bereaved. Mm -hmm. They don't all need counselling, but they just need a kind word. And as Vicky was saying, almost like an acknowledgement that they've lost somebody, and it's sad. But we're all hardwired uh, in the best circumstances to kind of get over grief. It's not something we'll be stuck with entirely for the rest of our days, although we never forget the person we've lost. But we do get better, but it's still nice for somebody just to acknowledge that that's happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, Vicky sort of nailed it there when she said people really just sometimes don't know what to say. And, you know, I've been in that situation. Others, and in and, and both sides, where, you know, someone close to me has died and you, you just don't know, somebody wants to say something, but you don't know how to react to them. They don't know what to say to you. It is a strange thing, isn't it? It's, it's weird because it's, it's the one experience that almost everybody will have at least once, if not several times in their lifetime. It's, it's a very common experience, but we just seem so ill-equipped. Um, I, I'm always struck. I've worked for Cruise for over 15 years now, and I'm, I'm still struck by this absolute reluctance to talk about death. And I've, you know, my own personal experiences of bereavement in a normal family way have been very awkward around that. And just, I get quite frustrated that people don't want to just, you know, a pat on the shoulder or a, you know, just a kind word acknowledging what's happened. It makes such a difference to the people that are in that position. But why? You know, why do you think we find it, uh, as Vicky said, we Scots have this stiff upper, you know, we, we don't talk about that. It, yeah. it, you know, it, it, and it doesn't seem, Vicky's right, it doesn't seem to have changed over the years, does it? We're not, no, it I doesn't get easier. No, I think you're absolutely right. I, I mean, the, the phrase that always comes to me is hadden doon. You know, we're just, you know, we're just not brought up to, to talk about these things. I mean, I remember when um, my own grandparents died when I was a child and I was quite close to them, nothing was said. We were told they were dead and that was it. So you start off as a child with that experience that oh, we don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. and, and we carry that into adulthood. It affects how we, how we operate as adults. But it's a mystery to me, to be perfectly yeah, honest. Yeah, it's also, I mean, I, I've been in that situation as well. Where I was uh, 16 when my mother died and uh, grandparents before that. So all that happened fairly young. But it's like as if, you know, don't don't say anything because you may upset somebody else. Um, you know, so you, they don't know what to say. So it's better just to get on with it. I think you're right. And, and another of my pet theories, I suppose, is that people are very... Scottish people anyway, I'm not sure whether it applies elsewhere, but Scottish people seem to me to be very uneasy when they experience other people displaying strong emotion and, you know, tears or, 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 or the kind of distress that might come around the grief. Sometimes I think people are very discomforted by that, you know, by seeing that. And I think it's partly because we, we think we're helpless to help. And in fact, as Vicky said, you know, just a kind word, a hug, 
or just an acknowledgement of what the person's feeling could make such a difference. Yeah, and again, I'm going back to what Vicky said there as well, because we're, we're, I think we're learning from her experience. Um, and, and she's saying a hug or even just a, a you know, I know you, how you may be feeling or whatever. Just a few, few words to someone who is, is bereaved. And, and your organisation, Cruise Bereavement Care Scotland, what you're talking about your, your calls and, you, you know, the, you, you've been getting uh, an increase in calls. Yeah. Um, can you tell, tell me and tell the listeners what's the talk, you know, what, what is the main concern? What are you getting calls mainly about? Well, we get calls about deaths that have happened the day before. We get calls about deaths that have happened 20 years ago. Um, we get calls from people who've lost a child, a parent, a friend, a colleague. It doesn't always seem to matter what the degree of proximity to the, you know, between the, 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 the person who's bereaved and who's died is. Because bereavement, some, you know, sometimes hearing about a death or seeing a death or being involved in a death has triggers of, of mm. previous deaths. You know, it's, I mean, sometimes we say that grief is cumulative. You know, you, Vicky said, talked very movingly, I thought, about, about how she's not moved on, but she's adapted to the loss of her child and got on with the rest of her life. But you're still vulnerable to these triggers from 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and that's one of the curiosities about it. You know, people think, talk about um, time's a great healer. And indeed it is. It does heal. You know, grief does heal over time. But you never quite lose the, the impact of it, I think. Time is a great healer, but it never goes away. You know, I, think that's, that's, I think that's right. That's, you know, and, and you're right. From my, you know, my personal experience, I can say you can be... Um, it doesn't. There's no rhyme or reason for for memories all of a sudden coming back to you, and and you know there's no reason that you should try and avoid them either. But it might just be um, you're driving past somewhere that you used to go with the the person that you you know you're coming back, whether a gran and auntie, um, son, daughter, wife, or whatever. These memories come back, and you can have a moment to yourself. I think I think that's right, and sometimes for people. It is all they want is a moment's private space to reflect. Other people would like the acknowledgement of it. But I think, you know, if you've lost a child or a parent or somebody close to you, why would you want to forget them? Exactly. Why would you want to kind of shut them out of your life? Um, you know, the, the, it, there's something about when you adapt to loss, you take the memories of the person you've lost with you and, and they enrich your life. Interesting, Stuart. If someone does want to contact uh, Cruz, then what's the best way to do it? Um, well, the easiest thing is to contact our helpline, 0845 600 or, or log on to our helpline at cruisescotland.org.uk. Right, let me just run through the number again because I'll no doubt uh, get calls. 0845 600 That's right. And, it's, it's, and there, there are skilled um, helpers who, who are able to, to take the call and either direct the caller to some additional forms of support or, or listen to them there and then. Stuart, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye now. Stuart Wilson, Chief Executive of Cruise Bereavement Care Scotland. And again, just uh, on the back of a survey that had been done about how British people handle bereavement, and it found that nearly half of adults think people actively avoided them while they were grieving because they were worried about saying the wrong thing. <laughs> 
You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. We're talking at the moment about why do we find it so hard to talk about death. And, um, you know, we've had a couple of examples there from, from Vicky Murray, who lost her baby nine years ago at birth. And, and she came, came over with some um, amazing thoughts as to people, why they avoided her, you know, and, and still do, I suppose, and don't want to talk about the subject. Um, also heard from Stuart Wilson, who's Chief Executive of Cruise Bereavement Care Scotland. And a few uh, texts coming in as well. We'll come to them in a moment. Uh, but let's go to Josephine, first of all. Josephine, good morning to you. Good morning, Ali, from a sunny penny cook. Sunny, <laughs> sunny penny. Well, it makes a change for the sun to shine on a Sunday. Well. Uh, right, so what, what's your thoughts here then? Ali, my son died 23 years ago. He was only 23. It was a drugs-related death. He choked on his own vomit. It was an accident waiting to happen. I was totally and utterly unconsolable. Nobody, nobody could speak to me and give me a bit of comfort because I really did heartbroken. But what I'm wanting to tell you, Ali, I went to cruise just the once. I was too angry and hurt to go back. Not because of the place, it was because of me, how I was feeling. But Stephen left a four-year-old son. Audrey, his mum, went to cruise. She asked him, how do you explain to a four-year-old, your daddy's died, you're never going to see him again. Ali, I thought this was wonderful. The counsellor said to her, tell him that Daddy took tablets and it wasn't his name on the bottle. Now, I thought that was just so basic, Ali. Mm-hmm. But that is true. You don't take what's no got your name on it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nobody at the time, Ali, nobody could console me. I was off my head with grief. I really, really was. Um and I still talk about them because it keeps the memory alive. Well, uh, it's as Stuart Wilson was saying there from Cruise, why would you want to forget anyway? You wouldn't, you know. It's, it's, it's something that happened and, and he's, you know, he's still your son. Indeed. Ali, the other thing is, I've often been told at night suit or something like that when I was working, I was like an old cougar to the like, waiters or waitresses or whatever. I wasn't. What it was, I had never seen it, Stephen, after 23 years old. I wanted to know, have you got a family, son? You know, I thought, what work do you do? And I, I, I can speak to young people, but I never saw my son again. He was 23. And, you know, the, the way that um, you're, you're explaining how your son died, what you're talking about this morning, there must be lots of parents listening to this programme who've gone through exactly the same thing with death and drugs and you know Ali, when it first all happened right, I never thought it could come to my door it was impossible never even thought it could come to Pennycook I was watching the television it was all day glass region mums and dads heartbroken I sat and watched them because it was highlighted then I never thought for one minute Ali that would be in my town and in my home, but I'm going to give you a wee laugh, right? When I get to the pearly gates, Ali, mm-hmm. and I see him, I can what he's going to say to me. Oh, for God's sake, Mother, you haven't half let yourself go. <laughs> 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 What's happened to you, Mum? <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you very much indeed for your call, Josephine, and, and sharing those thoughts with us. Thank you. Uh, Jim's in Edinburgh. Hello, Jim. Hi, Ali. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad, Ali. OK. Ali, I, I want to talk about my pet, well, me being, being uh, blind and what it's like to lose uh, family. Mm-hmm. Now, I lost my, my father uh, in 1990 and my mum in 1995. And just recently, I, I had a, a twin brother. I lost him on the 1st of October 2015 with not one but two different types of cancer and type 2 diabetes. And I got a lot of support from the RNIB, mm-hmm. especially from a lady called Jane Coates. Right. And um, everybody at RNIB was very help, helpful to me and supportive when I lost Billy. But it's always there, even the first Christmas, the first birthdays, the first wedding and anniversaries, the first of everything for me was always the hardest of ever, everything. But now uh, these things come round, uh, but you've, you've just got to go on, on with it, Ali. Yes, it's, as you say, you've got to get on with it, but I, I just wonder, how, how did people handle you, you know, the, the, when they met you, when these uh, well, when bereavements were going me, on? I got a lot of support, and I got a lot. I went to cruise bereavement care when I stayed in Fife, out back in 1995, and I met a lot of people there. Right. And they were all very supportive to me. Everybody was in the same boat. They'd all lost somebody or somebody else. But um, I took it very hard, because I, I, I could never see my parents. I knew, I knew they were there, and it's just one of these situations that I had to accept. And when I went to train for a guide dog in 1991, my mum took a lot, a lot more strokes because I couldn't qualify. And she herself passed away at 10 o'clock at night on 12th of July 1995. But the paramedics tried to get her to go to the hospital, but it was all, all in vain. It was far too late. Right. And then now um, I started living on my own in 2001, and I moved. I moved to Edinburgh. It'll be two years come May since I'm, I moved over here, and since I've moved, I moved to over here. I've got a lot of things going going for me now. I think as Stuart and and Vicky were saying, though, you know, as as life goes on, it's something, and we get older, it's something we're all going to have to deal with. We're all going to have to deal with bereavement in the family, whether it's your your granny or your granddad or your mum or your dad or, or or sisters, brothers. We're all going to have to deal with that at some time, and and that's what the the research, you know, that we're talking about today, uh, saying that people just don't know quite how to handle it. Um, thank you very much indeed, Jim, for your call. Let's go. To Margaret. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Ali. What's your point today, Margaret? Alos. Oh, sorry, Ali. Hold on. <laughs> it's either somebody at the door Hello. or the fire alarm. Aye, the door. Oh, wait a All right, you go and answer the door. That's fine. That's it. Um, I'll also, be talking in a few moments' time. Sorry, Ali. That's sorry, okay. sorry. Listen, it's hey. live radio. It's okay. Alos. Alos, my son, two years ago. Right. And. I've never really had any anybody to help me at all. I've, me and my other son, Danny, that's left, he's grieving really bad and all, along with myself, but no coping. How, how old was your son that you lost? Uh, Stephen was fifty. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've been at the doctor 
on a regular basis. My health doesn't keep too good and I went partially blind. And I've had nobody, absolutely nobody at all near me. Only one, I've got a grandson, Daniel. Daniel comes down, Daniel will phone to see if I need messages. I'll just not go back out of the house anymore. But Margaret, what about you when, when you are out and about? Um, you know, how do you find people treat you? Do, no. do they avoid you? Do they don't? Do they not want? Me. They don't they want to talk me. about it. They don't want to thing me. When he, that on that time he died, I had to go up the town to do a wee couple of things here and there, and I bumped into a couple of friends, and one of them came in and she says, "Margaret, I don't know what you say to you." She says, "I'm so sorry." I says, "No, it's okay. It's okay." But that was it. I just have shot myself kind of in the house and. I just don't want to go to meet MD. Mm. All I'm constantly doing is greeting and greeting and greeting and greeting. I do need, I do want help, and so does my boy want help. But well, look, look, just, you're just getting yourself upset, so let's just leave it there. But I, I would suggest to you, seriously, you, you you do need some help. You're right, and and you know it, and, and you're stretching out here and you're saying, I need some help. Lift the phone and give Cruise Bereavement Care a call because that's what they're there for. Uh-huh. Even just to, even just to chat to you for a, a little while, Margaret, and, and maybe help you. And um, the number again is oh eight four five oh eight four five six hundred two 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 seven. Thanks very much. Okay, thank Bye. you very much indeed. Bye. Thank you. There's Margaret. Right. We'll continue talking about that subject if uh, there's any more causes. A few um, texts coming in as well, so we'll chat about them in, in a few moments. I also want to talk uh, uh, about uh, buses. I know, different subject altogether, but uh, another survey out this week says you're not happy with them. Well, we'll talk about that uh, probably after 11 o'clock. And wolf whistling. Yeah. I was surprised to find that our MPs were discussing this in the Houses of Parliament. I thought, initially, I thought to myself, is there not other things they could be doing? But when you look into it, you know, it's maybe something worthwhile talking about. And they're asking the question, is it a hate crime? We'll talk more about that in a moment. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Quite a few calls and comments coming in regarding bereavement, and I'll come back to that in a, in a few moments. So we're here through until 12, still plenty of time to give me your thoughts. But do you think doing this should be made a hate crime? Well, Parliament spent time debating that last week. The MP for Grimsby, Melanie On, told us she believes making wolf whistling a criminal offence could help to prevent sexual abuse. As a woman who has experienced some of this, the idea that it is seen as a compliment, I think, is rapidly becoming much outdated. If we do not think that street harassment is acceptable, then why shouldn't we have laws that reflect that? This is not about trying to convict people, but making sure that in the whole agenda of violence against women and girls, uh, domestic violence, sexual harassment, sex discrimination, that there is a very clear bar set about the kind of behaviours that we think are acceptable. So the question I've got for you is, is criminalising someone for whistling at another person just pushing it too far? Are MPs wasting parliamentary time? Are there other things that could have been talked about in this country that you see maybe is more important? Or do you see it more as the tip of a very nasty iceberg? 
The young Paisley MP, Mary Black, made a powerful contribution. The discussion, which included reading out examples of some of the disgusting messages which get sent to her, she says not challenging the abuse simply normalises it. It feels like we're at a turning point just now with things like the, the Time's Up movement and the bravery of the number of women coming forward to tell their experience of abuse, sexism, misogyny, no matter how small it may seem, has been frankly incredible uh, and I can't, I can't say it's, it's been more positive in terms of moving us forward. But if there's anything that we have learned from all this, it's that this is not small. These are not small occurrences that happen. The downside to all of this progress is being faced with the reality that the women in my life that I know and love have been raped, beaten, assaulted, called sluts, whores and groped throughout their entire lives and have been led to believe that this is normal and that it's just a given, that it's just something that happens. And like the Honourable Member said before me, it's something that women should somehow be dealing with or solving themselves. Misogyny is everywhere in our society, absolutely everywhere. To the point where we often miss it because it's been so normalised by being continually unchallenged. So, do women need a law to protect them from wolf whistling? That's the question. Some say that's just painting themselves as victims. But what do you think? The Scottish Government told us any sexual harassment is completely unacceptable and encourage anyone who has been a victim to report it to the police. So the question is, is this just taking it too far? Do women, do you think, need a law to protect them from wolf whistling? Oh, treble three, twenty twenty four oh one. that's the number if you'd like to join us. Uh, here's a note on uh, the bereavement from Louise. She says, morning, Ali, about grieving. Uh, I feel young ones tend to be forgotten. When my dad died, I just turned 20, I felt as if it was... You're young, you'll get over it, be strong for your mum. And I was like, but I also suffered a loss. Thankfully, I had an aunt who was there for me. Uh, you're doing a grand job. Thank you very much indeed, Louise. Thanks for sharing that with us. So, yeah, you're right. Um, you know, it's, it's be there for your, your mum or your dad or, you know, you, you're 20, you're young, you'll get over it. Time's a great healer. Yeah, I've heard them all as well, Louise. Uh, let's go to John. Hi, John. Good morning, Ali. How are you this morning? You're Fighting. still alive? Yeah, I'm still here. I'm still here. So what it says, Ali, to me, at my age, I'm at the, the process of sort of telling my son and all my family what I want done when I go, you know. Right. I, I, even, I even go up to where my mum and dad and whatever's all gone. I've loads of friends who have died and had cancer or committed suicide. All lots of friends. But again, I even go up to where my mum buried. And I, I, I lie down sometimes where it is and say, well, this is my spot when I'm going to go, you know. But, but you've got to sort of think about it. It's never going to, it's going to happen to everybody, Ali. There's nobody escapes whatever. That's true. And if you, the, the beautiful memories that I've got, I mean, I've some some lovely friends, really good friends. I mean, one friend of mine, I always talk about, we done a, we done a play in the Perth Theatre called The Robe. And me and Alec were like gladiators in the, 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 the theatre, kind of in the play. And Alec's dead, but we died the first day, the lovely singer. But... I talk about how what happened in the theatre, and there's other friends which I've which I've gone and I have nice memories of good committed suicide, whatever. So it's nothing. It's something going to happen to everybody. And sometimes I've got to think about the bright side. I think well, and I'm a Christian as well, so I believe in whoever when you die, 
goddess for giving and you'll mm-hmm. be there. You know? So there's, it's another side of life as well, because we don't know it till we die, you know. But you've got to sort of think of the bright side sometimes. And I've got, I'm sitting at my, looking at my mum, picture my dad, they've all gone now. And my wee mum from, from Dundee, <laughs> she's me Dundonian. She's a lovely person. But again, it's sad at the time. But you just yeah, yeah, that's it. It is the memories, John. I'm going to have to stop you there just because of of time. So apologies. And uh, Irene, I'll come to you fairly shortly, okay? Because we've got to take stop now and uh, take the news. But we'll come to you right after the news, John. Thank you very much indeed for that for for sharing your thoughts and also quite a few coming in, as I say, on social media as well. You're listening to Scotland's Talking the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talking. Scotland's Talking. I'm Ali Bally. Very good morning to you with you through till 12. And um, we've been talking about bereavement and people how, how people handle that and, and how they find it difficult to talk to someone who has uh, suffered a bereavement. And, and, you know, we've been just generally chatting about that. Lots of comments coming in about that. Also comments coming in about uh, wolf whistling, which I was talking about just before the news. And we'll talk about buses at the moment as well. And you're, you're quite welcome to call in at any time regarding any of those subjects or something else you want to talk about. The number is 033-2020-401. Let's go to Irene, uh, who I was going to take before the news, but uh, sorry, Irene, we we ran out of time in the last time. Right, Okay. so what's your your thoughts then? Uh, 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 Hello, Irene, this is Irene, yes. Uh, I'm just telling you about, uh, I lost all my family, Irene. Okay. Uh, My mum, my dad, and my mother's sister, and a handicapped boy, David. See, I lost a lot of all my family. So they've all gone. Yeah. How how have people treated you? How have that's what we were talking about this morning? Is how you felt you were treated by other people when you had your bereavement? Oh, uh, really not bad. Because uh, uh, you see, I want to get a carer to look after me now. Right. My carer, Michelle. Right. She helps me a lot. So you, you, you're getting the help you, you need? Yeah. But it, <laughs> you're shaking here. Yeah, that's, that's all right. That's okay. And, that's... I'm, and I'm feeling very sad today because it's Mother's Day and I'm feeling very I know. sad. I know. It's, it's, it, you're right. It's Mother's Day and, you know, many people will be remembering, like you, will be remembering uh, their mum. So, um, you know, that, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and, I, and I always say, and I, and I learned this from my dad, uh, he said, you know, you don't have to. Um, wait till anniversaries. So, so when my mother died, and, and as I said earlier, I was 16 and my sister was about 12, I think. Um, in fact, she wasn't even that, 11. Um, but he, he always said to me, he says, you don't have to wait on an anniversary to, to think. And certainly today, Mother's Day, some people will be thinking. But there again, you probably think of people that you've lost every day, not just on on, on Mother's Day, particularly if you're talking about mothers. Uh, there's, I've got a, on social media, I've got one in here that says, Ali, it's 61 years since my son was full-time stillborn. Still upset that he was buried in a pauper ground, but cannot find the exact spot. I can get the area, but the part, no. Wrote to Sands year ago, years ago, no reply. I've lived with the fact, you know, that it doesn't really matter where he is. I say goodnight Every night. Gran, that's all it is. That's, that's this. But, you know, 61 years, and it's still in our mind there. Uh, thanks for that. As I say, we'll come back to, to more uh, on grieving in a moment. Let's go to Tommy. Hi, Tommy. 
pie there. You want to talk about whistling then? Well, whistling, I suppose, as, as you can allude to the tip of the iceberg, I, I think the more sinister, deeper point is the absolute absurdity of this sort of neo-Marxist trait that all men are kind of potential rapists and women are the victims of this abuse. Um, it, it's absolutely absurd, and it's actually pretty dangerous, I believe. Um, and I don't think men should actually tolerate this kind of dialogue uh, in the mainstream. That I mean, what I heard Mary Black describing there sounded like an ISIS prison camp. I, I don't know where she was brought up, but I don't know any women that think that being raped and beaten and abused is normal and is tolerated. And I don't see why we should tolerate our politicians actually speaking like that in public, and worse still, actually meaning it. Mm-hmm. it it's absolutely ridiculous. But if, if she feels, Tommy, if she feels that that is her experience and that's and she has that platform as an MP um, to, to, to talk about it, is she not right in giving her opinion? Well, she's certainly right in giving her opinion. But if that is actually indeed the environment that she grew up in, and that's who, what happened to all her friends and family. Why is he, why is he not in prison? I, I mean, so we, we need to legislate across the board to protect women from this. I don't know what percentage of the population would be uh, the people that she's describing, but it would be less than 100.01%. And so what, what legislation is now to become... Uh, I, I mean, actually, I see if there was an argument to keep women out of Parliament, this is the sort of nonsense that you would use. Is this what actually parliamentary time's been used for? Mm-hmm. To legislate against a wolf whistle. And actually, I don't know any women that are, feel violated if, if somebody whistles at them. I, I, well, that's, that's what I'm hoping that some will come on um, who do feel that. You know, never mind just sitting there and saying, it doesn't bother me. Ladies, if it does bother you, come and tell us, because I'm sort of like Tommy here. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, do... The question I was asking, do women need a law to protect them from wolf whistling? And, and my reaction is no. But as Tommy is saying, if you get upset when somebody or if somebody wolf whistles at you and you don't take it as a compliment, then come on and tell us why. So fair but comment. Sorry, what about if somebody's wolf whistling at a man? Well, as well, there's an interesting one in here, Tommy, from uh, David McCauley. David sent me a, a text and he says, Ali, think about when we wear our national dress, the kilt. Not the first time I've been subjected with women shouting stuff. It's not the same thing, surely, in an equal society. It ought to be. The world is not a perfect sphere and having politicians wasting time with stuff like wolf whistles sums it all up. Plenty more things way ahead of this that should be given priority. Thanks, Ali, enjoying the show. Thanks, David. So, but David making a point there, if he goes out in his kilt, you know, he, he's getting, um, the, you know, people and women in the main uh, making comments to him. Well, that, that's my point. Should that be a hate crime as yeah. well? I mean, yeah. it's, it's neo-Marxist trait. Men should not suffer it, and we should actually call people like Mary Black and the other politicians from Grindersby out and say, look, you actually might not be up to the job here. Get something else to do if this is how you view the world and leave us alone. Tommy, thank you very much indeed for your comments. If you agree or disagree with Tommy, here's the number. 0333 2020 
Now, uh, we'll keep talking about that. So I want to hear your comments on, on wolf whistling. But I also want to bring in, and not leave it too late, I want to talk about buses. I know, but some, you know, people use them every day. And are we getting the bus service that we deserve? Well, according to Citizens Advice Scotland, two out of three Scots are unhappy with their local bus services. They questioned 4,500 people for this national survey. About half of them think that buses are often late. And in Aberdeen and the North East, value for money is the biggest gripe, with 8 out of 10 people saying they're unhappy. A lot of users also complained that the buses aren't clean enough. Derek Mitchell is the Chief Executive of Citizens Advice Scotland and he's been discussing the findings with Rob Waller for Scotland's Talking. It was a, a mixed bag, to be fair to say, but um, the, you know, in terms of the unhappiness, the three main issues were around frequency, punctuality and cost in terms of value for money. So two-thirds of people um, who responded were dissatisfied with the frequency services and there was a real sense from people that services were being provided less now than they were in the past. So um, you know, the majority of respondents also felt there was an issue about their buses running late. You know, if their bus was supposed to be at a certain time, people expect it to be at that time, and um, the majority of respondents felt that that wasn't always the case. And the, the other issue was around cost and value for money. They felt that the costs had increased... Um, to, to a point that um, made it prohibitive for some and made it very difficult for others. So let's dive into some of those points. So basically they're saying just fundamentally not enough buses, you know, service not frequent enough. Yeah, I mean, in some places, you know, some of this was skewed by 14% of respondents um, came from um, rural communities and, you know, there's about 6% um, of the populations from rural communities. So some of it was, was skewed slightly around that, but there's, there was a definite sense that in some rural communities, services were much less frequent. In fact, one respondent talked about um, the fact that the bus service for him had stopped completely in his village. For him, you know, for him and other people living in that village, the knock-on effect um, is quite substantial. You know, access to the job market, getting to a GP appointment, getting to a hospital appointment, you know, getting to job centre appointments. All of these things are much, much less difficult. You know, in terms of you know public transport, three quarters of public transport are on the buses. So it's a real issue for people. And when we're talking about frequency, we're not talking about you know a bus that turns up every hour or half hour here. I imagine for some people we could be talking about just only having a couple of a day, perhaps? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah you know, as I say, for, for some respondents, we're saying that it stopped altogether. So that, that would be a, across that spectrum. And um, what are the uh, what's some of the feedback you had on, on price? You know, I, I have to confess, I don't use the bus very often. And the last time I did, I was shocked at what the price was. I mean, what, what, what are some of the people saying to you in the survey? I mean, some, some people were saying quite clearly that, that the cost of the bus services had, um, you know, increased beyond their expectations in terms of how, how it would increase. And, you know, there's a significant proportion of people who, who use bus services are in low income. So that, was, that, that, that made it much more difficult for them as well. How much is there an element here, Derek, that... If you give people an opportunity to moan, then they're going to have a moan, uh, and that probably getting uh, positive responses was, was going to be unlikely. Well, I mean, our objective, Citizen Advice Scotland's objective, is to give people a voice, 
Um, and we didn't want to exclude anyone um, from having their say. And, you know, as, as I said earlier, Rob, I, I, you know, a lot of people came forward, you know, 4, nearly 4,700 people responded to that survey. That voice, what, the, the, the intention here is to start a conversation. And I think the media interest in this this week has been very helpful. We've started that conversation. We want to keep, speak to Scottish government, to local authorities, um, and, to, and, and, and to bus companies about what consumers' views are. I mean, the, the, you know, remember, the, there were also some positive um, issues as well around cleanliness. The, the, the views of bus drivers were, come out quite positively in terms of the, the service that they, that, they, that they provide for them, and safety come out quite well as well. So, it, you know, it wasn't all... Um, this isn't about demonising bus companies. This is about starting a proper conversation um, with consumers' voice at the heart of that. Derek Mitchell, Chief Executive of Citizens Advice Scotland, uh, discussing the findings of the report on buses with Rob Waller. Uh, also joining us now is Paul White, who's Deputy Director, Confederation of Passenger Transport. So, Paul, what does your organisation do? Who do you look after then? Uh, good morning, Alex. Good morning. We are, the, we are the trade association that represents bus and coach companies across the UK. So all of the large operators and a good amount of the uh, small to medium-sized operators are within our body and we represent their, their views to government. OK, so um, a report like this from Citizens Advice Scotland, do you find, does your organisation and your members find it helpful? Well, we, we certainly re um, welcome the recognition of the value of the bus industry and uh, anything that puts that, the bus industry within the, the agenda, the wider agenda, so we can raise the discussion of the importance of the industry. That, that's, that's fantastic, although I'm not sure that we would find it the best use of uh, citizens' advice uh, resources, considering there's uh, two annual independent surveys on bus passenger satisfaction that occur already, the uh, Scottish uh, Household Survey and the uh, Transport's Focus Annual Survey, both of which um, record passenger satisfaction at far higher rates than the uh, Citizens Advice work has done. But, the, you know, what Derek was saying there is that um, it's got people talking this week. It's had a lot of press and media coverage. So surely that's a good thing. No, it's a, it's a good thing. I mean, we... we in, the industry um, is always, always striving to improve, and we note the factors that the report uh, raises as most important to passengers. So uh, frequency and punctuality, in other words, kind of bus reliability, uh, uh, is, a, is a focus of the industry, and we're committed to uh, working with our public sector partners to improve it. I think what's important to note about those is that those are factors that are not always entirely within operators' control. Uh, buses are increasingly being held up in... Uh, urban congestion, and that can happen in rural areas as well. Uh, operating costs increase because of it. Buses are held up, and the industry can invest. I mean, the industry has invested over £250 million in the last five years in newer vehicles, smart ticketing, better customer information. But unless that new vehicle gets priority through traffic, then, then that investment is not, uh, is not fully realised. So that's why we have to raise this issue and get buy-in from uh, national and local government to uh, in, improve uh, bus priority and increase bus speeds. Mm. And that can then follow through to uh, better services for passengers. I'm just looking through some of the, scrolling through some of the comments that are coming up on social media. And I have to say, um, they're really quite positive, Paul. You know, no, nobody's taking a, a pop here at the bus companies or the drivers. Uh, here's one that says, we have a good service, a bit pricey. Uh, it's every hour and a local bus two times an hour. Uh, it's a good day by night. It's a bit iffy. 
Um, thanks for that. Uh, here's another one that says, I have nothing but admiration for the way the stagecoach drivers handled the weather last week. They were total knights of the road. And that comes from Linda. Thank you very much indeed, Linda. Um, and, and, and when I drive around and I don't use the bus, um, I wouldn't say very often because I, I, I'll just stop there and say I don't use the bus because it's inconvenient from where I live to where I want to work or where I want to go. Uh, so at the moment... Um, I, I, I don't use it, Paul, but I have to say, I do see, you know, quite clearly that, um, that a lot of the, the, the bigger bus companies are certainly investing in the stock because, you know, the, the, there's an all, not a lot of good new buses going around. Well, that, that's great feedback feedback to hear, and I think it's an important point you raise about the, the, the importance of the bus industry when you have spells of bad weather like that, and how reliant people are, and how the bus industry really really pulled together to provide services where possible through that bad weather. Um, I think it's also worth noting that research widely shows that people who don't use buses regularly have the worst view of buses, um, but actual regular passengers, the sort that are... Um, part of the transport focus survey actually have higher levels of satisfaction and, and the uh, Citizens Advice Bureau work um, about 27% of those either never use the bus or rarely use the bus and maybe that's had an impact on, on the sort of figures that we see from the research. Right, so in general, you know, uh, you, you, you feel that the, the money used here could have been used in a better way but you take some of it on board? Uh, yes, mm. yes, exactly. Let me just do a couple of other comments that are coming in here and let's just see what we're saying. I want to talk about buses, says Kate. She says they're okay but are not clean enough. Oh, there we go. I wish the council could take it back. I see this is uh, previous council buses. Would it be Dundee? It certainly is. Um, they're not just enough buses in Dundee as there are a lot of vehicles. They sometimes don't turn up and leave you waiting in the cold and the rain. There can really be no excuse for that, surely. If a bus has gone off, is it not just easy enough to get another bus to take its place, Paul? The, the industry works hard to meet the um, standards. We are, we are a regulated industry and the Traffic Commissioner uh, has, a, has, has the powers to um, penalise operators who don't meet punctuality and reliability standards and, and she does so. Uh, so uh, these anecdotal instances of a bus maybe not turning up uh, hor horrible, horrifying, but um, the, I'm, I'm confident these are the exceptions rather than the rule. Right. Paul, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme and giving us uh, the view of the Confederation of pa Passenger Transport. That was Paul White. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Let's go to Patna and Alistair. Hello, Alistair. Hello there. Your point this morning, please. My point this morning is, is the same as your, your previous callers. Uh, but, yeah, in Patna, I find the bus service quite good. I'm a retired bus driver. I took early retirement and came up from England. Um, and the, the, the service in Patna is very, very good, but quite expensive. Right. And when you mentioned about um, people being left at bus stops cold and nothing's been done, the problem you've got is uh, a lot of these companies have what they call engineering spares. They have spare buses that they can use when buses break down or they have to go off to, for servicing or what have you. And because it's a business and it's, it's run on profits, the companies now are cutting back and reducing those engineering spares. So when a bus breaks down, they haven't got anything to re replace it with. Mm -hmm. So they just think, oh, well, hard luck, get on with it. And this is, this is what one, why I took early retirement, because it's not the job now that it was when I started. 
I was a great believer it was a good public service, but it's now a business. Well, that, that's... Profit, it's profit-related. Is there something wrong with that? Uh, I, I, well, yes, it's a service. It's a business. Call me old-fashioned. It's, like it's the a business. NHS. That's a service. It's a business. It's not a service. It it's, used to be a service. Yeah, I know, but things move on. And when when it was decided to uh, deregulate, is that the word? Mm. Yeah, when they deregulated yeah. buses. Uh, now, whether that was a good decision or not, I'm, I'm not arguing that. Yeah. But if you hand it to a I private think, company yeah. Yeah. who has shares, and, and I actually take this from uh, where I live. I live, I live in Dundee, mm -hmm. and I, I read in the local press about people complaining about the lack of a bus service in certain areas. Yes. And, you know, you look at... And, and I drive through these areas mm. and I see buses going through the areas that are empty. Yes. You know? Oh, uh, yeah. And, and you think, well, what is the point in complaining if you're not using... If the service yes. is not being used and the council are saying, well, we can no longer afford to subsidise this, which a lot of councils did and still do in some, some routes, but if they can't afford to do it, then they've passed this over to a private company. They've got shareholders they've got to keep happy. So they, they can't run at a loss. So it's, oh, no, I mean, you know, right. it's, it's a business. That's what I keep saying. It's a business. But where I used to live in England, on a, after six o'clock, you had two buses. And we had a, we had a population of 150,000 people. And we had two buses. But they were the profitable ones. Right. Now, in the good old days, the profitable routes subsidised the poorer routes, but at least everyone got a bus service of some description. But now it just seems it's not making a profit. People, yeah, I, I, admit, I admit what you're saying. People don't use it often enough, so they think, right, we'll just cut it. Mm -hmm. Rather than, than think, right, the, the, the route I was, the route, one of the routes I was working on made thousands. And, but they didn't say, and yet where I lived, there was no bus after six o'clock or on a Sunday. And rather, and I did admit, raise this with the company, saying, well, why can't you just take some of the money from that route and at least give us a, a bus route, bus, say, every two hours on a Sunday or every three hours or two, twice a day? No, they weren't interested. And this is, this is my, one of my arguments. They should, it should be spread out a bit better. Right. OK, thank okay. you very much indeed, Alistair. Thanks thank for your view. Thank bye you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Uh, let me go back to um, a comment on... Uh, social media. Ali, and this comes from Sheila. Hello, Sheila. How are you? Uh, we'll come to you in a moment, Kate. Hang on. Uh, Sheila says, Ali, I used to get wolf whistles in the 1960s. It didn't bother me one little bit. And I don't know why they're making such a fuss about it today. It actually made me feel quite good. Sheila, thank you. <whistles> That's just for you. Hello, Kate. How are you? Whistling is absolutely fabulous. <laughs> Nobody does it now. Mm -hmm. I know I'm a wee bit older, right? But just not too much. And it was great if you were walking down the street and the whistle. It was absolutely great. They're going too far with the alley, too far. Well, um, that, that's why I'm asking. You know, if somebody's upset by it, then you know, if there is a lady or two listening, then them? sorry. What would upset them? Well, it's... It's a compliment. It's, if somebody says, like, if you're looking nice, right, and you walk down the street, you expect, or you're looking... No, now. See, in the 60s, it was great. <laughs> so, as far as you're concerned, MPs are wasting parliamentary time. Exactly. There's a lot more sensible things that could be going on about. 
OK, thank you very much indeed no, no, for getting no, touch. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, right, go on then. Why are you not on the radio so much? And what happened to Reddy? <laughs> we're getting old. Come, Come on. on, we're what getting old. We, we need a rest. Is Reddy retired? Oh, yes. Is yes. And, and he deserves it after all these years of hard work and up in the morning and early mornings and Get things. Get away with you. <laughs> Get away with you. I've picked up when my bus. Ma- the job, you should keep doing it. I've picked up my bus pass now, Kate. Thank you. I might start using the buses. All the best. Thank you. All the best to you. Thanks. Um, here's one that says, Morning, Ali. Is that MP trying to justify her highly paid job? She should be sacked. I never got a wolf whistle, but I would have loved it. That comes from H in Edinburgh. Thanks for that. Um, no, I don't think, here's another one, I don't think wolf whistling should be something that needs to be a topic of conversation in the House of Commons. Surely there are more important issues to be addressed. It's only a wolf whistle and it can't do any harm. So what's the fuss all about? Thank you very much indeed for that, Liz. And uh, who have we got next? Donald. Hello, Ali. Hello, Donald. You want to change the subject back to, to, to bereavement we were talking about earlier yeah. on. Right, what's your thoughts? I, I lost my dad in 2010, Ali. Right. And I still cry to this day, and when I see people outside, I want to cry with them. How do people treat you? That's, that's what we're coming down to. You know, at the beginning, we were talking in the fact that how people can not know what to say, and, and, and therefore it gets very awkward when you meet someone. Well, I, I, I really don't know what to say, Ali. It's just, I feel very awkward when somebody talks about it. I, I can't stop crying. I stop thinking about it. Um, I, I know it's Mother's Day today. It's just when Father's Day comes up in June, that's when I start to think about them, you know. Mm-hmm. So even someone talking to you about them just now, you feel yourself welling up, do you? Well, when I'm talking to you and the other listeners, Ali, I feel bad talking to you for some reason, you know. Well, thank you for that. And hopefully, as I said earlier, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter um, how long ago your bereavement was in the family. Uh, if you still, and, and, you know, Stuart Wilson, the chief executive of Cruise Bereavement Care Scotland, who was on earlier, he made this point that people still remember for years to come, and, and maybe anything that just sets it off. And if they, if they want to talk about it, then they should contact uh, Cruise Bereavement. And again, that number is 0845 600 2227. It just may help you. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Donald, for that. Uh, let's go to Nan Mitchell. Hello, Nan, how are you? Hello, darling, I'm fine. How's yourself? Oh, tickety-boo. All the better for hearing from you. You're keeping well? I'm not too bad, thanks, Ali. Good, good. Now, Nan's in Kirkcaldy. Ever walked down the high street and had a wolf whistle? Well, I didn't. I wasn't born and bred in Kirkcaldy, as you know, Ali. I mean, I'm 30 years here, but I was born and bred in Glasgow. Right. And left school at 14. Started work. Glad to get out of school because I was desperate to get to wear high heels. And, of course, I could put my hair up and put my makeup on. And you're walking to work, workmen up scaffolding. Even boys standing at the doors of the workshop, they would give you a real whistle. And it was brilliant, because you knew you were looking your best. Hello? Uh, yeah, I'm listening. I'm letting you're you carry listening. on. I'm letting you I'm carry you're on. letting me bl- blather on. I'm letting you blather on. Go on, then. <laughs> uh, you always got a, you got a real whistle. thought nothing of it. It was just, oh, my, I must be looking good. 
I even remember I was married. I was married young. I was married when I was 17. So I must have been in my, my mid-20s because I had three children to then. And I was all dressed up on a summer's day and had gone down Renfield Street in the bus, got off one bus, and another bus passed, and the bus driver pulled in his window and Wolf whistled me when I was waiting to cross the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to be vain or boasting, but I was what they called a wee smasher. <laughs> <laughs> I'm five foot nothing, the height of nonsense. And I've got photos to prove it. When my granddaughter first saw the photograph of him, it was taken in May 1945. I was just going on 16. She was absolutely speechless. She says, Oh, Nana, aren't you beautiful? And someone I showed it to just lately thought I looked like a film star. There we go. So I'm really... When I look back at it, I say to myself, oh, my goodness, did I really look at that? that. I mean, I'm going on 89 now. When I look at the photograph and I say, God, did I really look at that? So why the... What harm is a whistle going to do them? A whistle's not going to drag them into a, a close or into bushes or attack them. It's just men, of course, showing their appreciation of somebody that looks nice. Nan, thank you very much indeed for, for calling in uh, with your thoughts. Thank you, Nan Mitchell and Kirkcaldy. Joseph's in Glasgow. Hi, yes. Joseph. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Joseph. Hi, Ali. Good morning to you. Good right. morning, Ali. Lovely, fresh Sunday morning. Indeed, right. So what have you got to say today, then? Well, the, the buses, Ali, I mean, as I think it's, it's the, the way the buses run, and, and not just in Glasgow, they all come down these streets in the centre of Glasgow, all in a row, alley, same buses, numbers, and, everything, and three quarters of the buses are empty. And they're running too many buses during the day, alley. See me take a bus late after 7 o'clock at night, it's atrocious. You know what I mean? Mm. Do, you, do, you use the, do you use these buses? I'm a regular, I've got a bus pass, alley, I'm over Hamas, pensioner, 73 right. years of age. Hello. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm listening. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking. You know, you, you're saying all these buses come down and they, they all look the same. They've got the same numbers and all that type of stuff. But surely a company's not going to run buses that are not being used. Are you not just over dramatising it? No, Ali. I live in the city centre of Glasgow, and, and, and you just get down there. The, the buses are all in lines, Ali. And the vast majority of them get used in the morning and evening time. But during the day, a lot of these buses, it's at night time when people try to get to places at night, can't get a bus. That is the problem in these cities. After 7 o'clock at night, you can stand there freezing cold alley, waiting maybe an hour for a bus, mm-hmm. a local bus. They take the local buses off and you've got to stand there, don't know what to do. You can't afford a taxi, the taxis are too dear. You know, and if you're going a distance, then you've got the bus pass. And the, 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 the filth of these buses is absolutely out of order. You can go on that bus alley, I can catch a bus in the morning, and get that bus back at night, it's got the same papers all over the place, cans, balls. Well, it's, it's probably, how much has that got to do with the passengers, though? I you know, know, if that bus comes out of the garage at 7 o'clock in the morning, and it's not due back again, and, and it's out on the road all day, mm. 
It's the passengers that are leaving the dirty room. I don't understand that. Yeah, it's another bus company. I'm not, but in old days when the council said these buses, they stopped at terminus and actually the driver went up. Joseph, the good old days, the good old days. Thank you very much indeed. Carol is in Dumfries. Hello, Carol. Hi. Hi there. What's your point? Um, my point is I think you've taken the Mary Black uh, legislation about uh, the, sorry, I'm all tongue-tied now, um, about wolf, wolf whistling as a smoke screen to the, the bigger institutional uh, misogyny that she was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, a wolf whistle, I'll agree with people, won't hurt them. But she was, hard to, everybody will have listened to it or watched it on television, and it was horrendous what she was talking about. And she was talking about how the government and mostly run by men. And all due respect to yourself and all other men, you don't know what it's like to be exposed to the everyday misogyny that we get. Can I give you a wee example of my first job? Go on. Um, I was straight out of college. I streetwise from Glasgow. I was taken through all the different things I needed in my job, where this was, where that was. The woman, it was a woman who was in charge of us. And uh, she says, last thing to tell you is Mr. So-and-so, who works in this department, never be alone with him. Never be in the storeroom, never be in this office. If he walks in, you must walk out. Now, I knew what she was talking about. And nobody, why did no one else, and the men who worked in that place, why did none of them deal with this man who was a sexual predator, mm-hmm. who would grow up young lassies like me, just he didn't he, I ran every time I saw him um, that was accepted, now that is still going on today I, I, no, I, up... I find that totally unacceptable, I mean I, I, I totally agree with you oh, but it's still going on and mm-hmm. why do men put up with it, why is it on women to protect ourselves from men, these men have all got, well they've definitely got mums have they got daughters, their sisters? Uh, why do they watch and do nothing? Why do they say nothing? Why does it take a woman to stand up and say the horrible things that she had to say, Mary Black, I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, they're all true. But we're attacking her now because you've cherry-picked this wee thing about wolf whistling. Well, I'm very big. It happened, you know, know, and 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 it was brought know, up. In, it was brought up in the House of Parliament. So the, I'm asking, indeed. I'm asking the question: indeed. Is it a waste of time in the House of Parliament? I think talking about that one piece of it uh, was uh, belittling all of the other really, really serious things, and that women like myself have had to protect ourselves from men. And do you know the funny thing about that? I didn't think about this till years later. I never went home and told my dad. I never went home and told my dad that I'd been warned off this man. My dad would have come into my work and battered him, even although nothing had ever happened. But I instinctively knew not to say anything to my dad mm-hmm. because what that man could, was, could have done, um, I knew it was wrong. My dad would have known it was wrong, and he would have protected his real asset. So why aren't men protecting women? And why did why didn't you stand up and tell your dad then? You didn't give you're saying why why you're saying why are men not protecting women? You didn't give your dad a chance to protect you. I didn't because you know why? I instinctively knew if my dad came in and did that, guess who would have been at your job? It'd have been me. Mm -hmm. Without a shadow of a doubt, I'd have been shown the door not because of what my dad did, but they'd have found another reason. You know, troublemaker, no no sense of humour, nothing ever happened to her anyway. Um, so 
I instinctively knew that that's what would have happened, I would have lost my job. Carol, that, Carol, I'm going to stop you there because just because of time, I'd like to squeeze a few more in. But thank you very much indeed for your call. More in a moment. And now on Scotland's Talking, time for any other business. All right, then, let me clean up with some other business because there's other comments been coming in as well. Busy day today. Uh, one from Sarah. Sarah Barwood says, now let me read this for you because I, I don't follow it all, but I'll read it anyway. Good morning, Ali, because she's complaining about me. That's OK. As a regular listener and fan, I am dismayed at you, sir, and very disappointed. Last week, you incorrectly said the First Minister was having a pop at lorry drivers. Uh, she didn't. She was having a go at the companies. Right, OK, if I, I got that wrong, uh, you know, uh, I don't think I did. But, I'll, you know, if you think I should apologise, fine, OK. Um, also, you joked during this week that you gave Gina the day off. Ali, this kind of comment is out of order. It's sexism. Sarah, I haven't a clue what you're talking about regarding the Gina thing. Um I covered for Gina one day this week when she was off and I did start the show, I think, by saying I've given her the day off today. So so what, what was wrong with that, Sarah? You know, if you think that's sexist, I would say to you, get a life. Uh, really, really do, because that is, you know, she, she was on a day off. Well, she wasn't, actually. She was away doing something else. She was away doing another project for the company, which actually was of no interest to anybody else. So why would I say, well, actually, Gina's away doing something else today, you know? She was on a day off. Just don't get that one at all. Sarah, thank you very much indeed. Keep your thoughts coming in. She says, you're talking about wolf whistling and attitudes to women. Please apologise uh, for the Gina comment. It's important. I would if I knew what I'd done wrong. OK? And I didn't. It's your opinion only. Uh, Gary, how are you doing? Morning, Alan. How are you doing, son? All right? All right, thank you. No bother. Just talking about the buses. Right. I've travelled in the buses for, say, 50-odd years, and I've never seen... There's such a shambles now, Ali. It's, see, even the Commonwealth Games here, Ali, it was all new buses, the best of stuff. And the usual Commonwealth Games away, the city's going downhill, and the buses are absolutely shocking. You know what I mean? Abs in, what, you, in what way, Gary? Just tell me when you see a brand-new bus in Glasgow. It's the old, maybe 10-year-old, 15-year-old buses you go on, the heaters don't work... And another thing as well, my wife was in the hospital a couple of years ago. This is for and I went to the the new hospital, the what do you call it? Um, the, the Queen Elizabeth. So you go over and you visit, I had to travel on the bus, you get the bus over. So I came out and I get an all day ticket alley. So you came out and at night you're up five o'clock next morning for work and that all day ticket, you're not allowed to travel on a private bus. My girls' bus are passing. See what about the older people standing at that bus stop freezing cold? maybe visiting their husbands or spice in the hospital, and they can't jump on any bus into the town. They must wait for a, a, a first bus mm -hmm. before they can use that pass. So ridiculous, Ali, not that's an all-day ticket. You know what I mean? You could be sitting there, waiting there an hour on a bus, and maybe five my girls' ba buses pass, but you're not allowed to use it. No, you can't use it. You must pay your fare. That's no right, Ali. You know what I mean? Right, different companies, different, different rules, isn't it? Different yeah, rules. It should yeah. be the whole one. Classical should be rules for everybody. They're bringing in contractors because... They can't get enough buses on the road as well, Ali. It's down there as well. And in the winter time, there the buses. You go on the buses are freezing. The old people sitting at the front, absolutely. The windows all steamed up. This is a. I mean, this is 2018 now, Ali. We see the buses and. I mean. Public transport, you think, should be a lot better ah, than oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but Ali, as I said, the Commonwealth Games here, Glasgow was beautiful. Oh, what a city! 
Since you go down to the village now, Alec, have a look about, have a look with the council on the roads, and go down and have a look at that village now. The nice pond, it's all run down, prams, bikes thrown in it. It's abs- absolutely shocking, so it is, Ali. You know what I mean? Gary, thank you very much indeed for your call, and I'll end up with a comment from Karine Gillespie. She says, Morning, Ali. I think our biggest gripe with the buses here in Dumfries is the Dumfries to Edinburgh service. Not only are they few and far between, it's a three-hour journey for us, and we have to travel to the city in a housing scheme service bus. We rattle about in this bus the full journey, and it's usually cold as well. Just what Gary was talking about there. While, on the other hand, there's a luxury bus daily to Glasgow every hour with all the mod cons, and which is usually just under a two-hour journey. Doesn't seem fair, really, and I'd love to know why from Stagecoach. Why is the service from Dumfries to Edinburgh a poorer quality than the buses from Dumfries to Glasgow? Thank you very much indeed. Corrine, thank you for your calls today, uh, your texts and your emails. Most appreciated. This has been Scotland's Talking. I'm Ali Bally. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Bye-bye. Scotland's Talking. The podcast.